I remember as a kid, the feeling I would get when I was looking forward to something exciting, like getting to go to the high school football game with my friends, to watch my older brother and sister in the marching band. I suppose other kids would have been excited to watch the game, but I come from parents that are more academic, musical than sporty, so I had my priorities straight. But the feeling I had all that day, looking forward to the game, you know the feeling, that churning in your stomach, left me wanting to run around and yell. Can you imagine how Jesus' disciples must have felt after watching him ascend into heaven? And they had been told to go back to Jerusalem and wait. It's easy for us in hindsight. We know they only had a bit over a week to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit to be fulfilled. All they had to go on was Jesus' promise that it would happen not many days from now. It must have felt like an eternity to the disciples, filled with excitement over the resurrection of Jesus, his ascension into heaven, and the promise of his return. Let's read about how they spent that time waiting. From Acts chapter 1, verse 12 through 26. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let's pray. God, I thank you for giving us your scripture to learn from. I pray that we would learn well studying these things today. As some of them are confusing, God, I pray that you would give us enlightenment. But I pray that we wouldn't stop just at coming to you for information, but rather transformation, that we would change our lives as a result of these things that we study. 
Amen. From the details of this passage, there are three main concepts that we need to understand. First, there are different roles and levels of authority in the church. We need to clearly understand those roles in order to avoid being ensnared by false leaders. Second, God is sovereign over all things. That is a primary theme of Acts and is particularly evident in this passage. But God's sovereignty does not provide any excuse for sin or reprieve of personal responsibility. Third, the Holy Spirit is essential. He is the main character in the story of Acts, and he must be the main character in our church story as well. Ten days passed between when Jesus was taken up into heaven and Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came down on the church. And from those ten days, this is the only story we have recorded. Luke is careful to list 11 names, 11 out of 120 or so men who were present, because the presence of those 11 for this event is crucial. The church is about to recognize an apostle to replace Judas, who betrayed Jesus and abandoned the ministry that Jesus had called him to. Unless all of the faithful apostles who were appointed by Jesus were present, there is no way that this task of recognizing a replacement apostle could be done with any kind of validity. But why did Judas have to be replaced at all? Why couldn't they continue on with just 11 apostles? Some commentators believe that the early church acted prematurely, that God's intention all along was to appoint Paul to be that symbolic 12th man, and that Peter and the other 10 apostles did the wrong thing to take it upon themselves to appoint another. One of the difficult things about studying the historical narratives in the Bible is that there is not always any indication of whether a particular action was viewed favorably by God or whether it was in error. And that is certainly the case with this passage. We don't know much about Matthias. This is actually the only mention of him in the Bible at all. And this is the only mention of Barsabbas. So does the silence about Matthias mean that he didn't do anything important? I don't think so, because this is actually the last mention for Mary, Jesus' mother, and in fact for all of the other apostles, except for Peter, James, and John. So we really can't make an argument against Matthias based on the relative silence of the Bible about him. I don't find anywhere in scripture to suggest that Matthias was an illegitimate apostle. Other commentators say it was essential that a 12th apostle be appointed prior to Pentecost because Jesus appointed the apostles to sit in judgment over Israel. We learn that in Luke chapter 9. And so in a sense, they represented Israel in miniature. Isaiah 32, 15 says that the Holy Spirit will begin to restore Israel. And so those commentators say it was essential, not that it was a mistake, but that it was essential for there to be 12 apostles at the time the Holy Spirit was given, so that those twelve could represent Israel as it was beginning to be restored by the Holy Spirit. But I find that argument to be somewhat lacking, too. I think the best I can say for it is that it would answer the question out of all the things that happened between the Ascension and Pentecost, why did Luke decide to include this story? If there had to be 12 apostles to represent Israel before the Holy Spirit was given, then obviously we would need the explanation of how that 12th apostle was appointed. 
but that isn't really enough to convince me. You see, Luke's purpose in writing this account is to explain how there came to be 12 apostles. But he doesn't explain, aside from recording Peter's own words of explanations, why they had to have a 12th. And so I think we need to look to Peter's words to understand the why. Peter says in verse 17 that Judas was allotted his share in the ministry. Now, the way that's worded sounds kind of like Judas was the recipient of some kind of reward, like Judas was allotted his slice of apple pie. I can't wait until Thanksgiving, by the way. But I don't think that's what is intended here at all. The word for ministry in this passage was originally associated with restaurants, not religion. It meant to serve at a meal table. And it reminds us that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve that he instructed his followers to emulate him in this. Judas was allotted his share in the ministry doesn't mean that he had some kind of honor. It meant he had a share in the labor and the duty. I'm reminded of the passage I preached from two weeks ago. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. I believe the reason why a twelfth apostle was needed is because the work for apostles was too great for the eleven men to accomplish alone. Which is a bit confusing because there were approximately 120 men in the church at that time, all of whom were disciples who had stayed true even after Jesus was killed, and who were presumably excited to go out and preach that the kingdom of God was at hand. So why was it so important that one of them be elevated to the position of apostle? And what's the difference between an apostle and a disciple anyway? Oftentimes the terms disciple and apostle are used interchangeably. It's not surprising that we confuse these two terms because Jesus called to himself 12 disciples early on in his ministry, and those 12 were also appointed as apostles. But there are actually some important differences between the two. A disciple literally means a student. Anyone who has dedicated their life to studying the teaching and life of Jesus, and not only to study those things, but to follow his model, is a disciple. Every true Christian is a disciple. But only 14 men have ever been apostles of Jesus, and only 13 of them remained true to their calling. Where a disciple is literally a student, an apostle is one who is sent and sent with authority. The term was originally political. Before electronic communication methods revolutionized the world, powerful people had to appoint and send people who could speak with their authority in business and peace treaties. Because the urgency of some decisions was so great, there was not time to send a messenger back to the ruler to have him make a decision. It's kind of like a diplomat, but with even greater authority. And a ruler would have to trust the person completely in order to give him that level of authority. I mean, can you imagine uh, appointing one of your friends and saying, this person has the authority to speak my thoughts and my opinions about any matter? I don't know anyone that I trust that well. Jesus is the chief apostle in the New Testament. He was sent by God to speak on behalf of God, and he made clear that those who rejected his message rejected God. 
Similarly, Jesus sent the apostles as witnesses that he is the Christ. And so to reject the message of the apostles is to reject Jesus himself. And the opposite is true as well. In Matthew 10, we have these words of Jesus. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. A great example of the kind of authority that an apostle had is found in verse 20, where Peter references two different psalms, number 69 and number 109. And he pulls out one verse from each psalm and smashes them together to make his point about the necessity of Judas being replaced. If anyone besides an apostle were to do the same thing, I would probably be extremely skeptical, because Peter seems to be cherry-picking his verses here. But I believe Peter had the authority, and more importantly, the inspiration from the Holy Spirit to understand those two psalms in their fuller context of redemptive history. And in fact, if you read Psalm 69 and 109 with Jesus' life and death in mind, you can definitely see the messianic hints. John, when he wrote his gospel, also references Psalm 69 as applying to Jesus when he kicks the livestock and money changers out of the temple. So I think Peter had the right of it. But I would be suspicious of anyone now doing something similar. There's a difference between the Apostle Peter and the rest of us in terms of our authority to interpret scripture aside from its plain meaning. We also see that the purpose of a disciple and an apostle differ. The purpose of a disciple is to mirror his or her life after the master. We think of Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Justice, kindness, and humility. That sounds like the Jesus I know. Then in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. First meaning of primary importance. We as disciples must seek first to copy the righteousness of God in our own lives. And again from Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. Obviously, an apostle has that purpose as well, but something more is added. Peter says in verse 22 that the purpose of the apostles is to be a witness to Jesus' resurrection. I think this is the key to why a twelfth apostle was needed at that time. The work was so great, the skeptics so many, that they needed the full complement of apostles to give the eyewitness testimony that Jesus himself had risen from the dead. That is the key miracle by which Christianity stands or falls. And there was enough work to be done in defending that point that a twelfth apostle was needed at that very time in Jerusalem, in addition to Paul being appointed as apostle to the Gentiles. So the community of believers puts forward two men to determine which of them would be appointed as apostle. The criteria used to narrow the list from 120 to 2 were fairly simple. The man must have followed Jesus in his ministry, starting with Jesus' baptism by John through his ascension. 
The man must have been an eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection, having seen Jesus alive after the time of his death. These qualifications differ somewhat from the qualifications that Paul specifies for himself as apostle. Paul says an apostle must have seen Jesus resurrected and have received a commission from Jesus to be his witness to the world. But he doesn't say anything about having to follow Jesus for the time of the earthly ministry. And in fact, Paul himself opposed Jesus during his earthly ministry and for some time thereafter. So these differences cause some problems, but I don't think they are insurmountable. First, neither Peter nor Paul is making a dictionary definition or a precise theological definition for apostleship. Peter is specifying some criteria to narrow the list of candidates being considered at that time down to a manageable number. And Paul is making a defense that he really is an apostle against the accusations of some in the Corinthian church that he is weak and a poor speaker and because of that he has no authority. The key difference lies in the requirement to have been a disciple for Jesus for his earthly ministry. And for the apostles whose primary focus would be Jerusalem and the nation of Israel, immediately after Jesus' death and resurrection, the requirement to have walked with Jesus for the three years of his ministry makes perfect sense. That man, who had seen Jesus every day for three years, could not be mistaken. When testifying to the resurrection of his Lord, no one could reasonably say, Are you sure it was him that you saw? Maybe it was someone else and you were confused. Someone who had been with Jesus for his entire ministry would recognize Jesus at a glance, having spent so many hours watching him while listening to his teachings in public, in private, on boats, in camp, in the city, walking along the roadside, in the light, in the dark. They wouldn't be mistaken. But as the church grew more distant from Jesus' resurrection, both in time as the weeks and months went on, and in physical distance as the message reached farther and farther out from Jerusalem, the importance of that particular facet would become less. The purpose of the apostle would still be the same, to be a witness to Jesus' resurrection, but I think the importance of being part of that earthly ministry to validate the apostle's recognition, physical recognition of Jesus, would be reduced. Paul's witness of Jesus after his death is somewhat different. Whereas the other apostles saw Jesus between the time of his resurrection and his ascension, Paul saw Jesus after he ascended. Everything about Paul's witness of Jesus is so powerfully miraculous that I think few would criticize the account by saying, are you sure you recognized him correctly? You say you saw a blinding light and you were blind and then you were healed, but maybe that wasn't Jesus that you saw. I think it's more likely that they would just write off the entire account completely rather than nitpick that particular detail of whether he recognized the right guy. Where Peter's criteria and Paul's criteria coincide is with this. The apostle must be commissioned by Jesus. Well, was that true of Matthias? Yes, it was. You see, Matthias was not elected by the church to this role. 
The church narrowed the possible candidates and then prayed that the Lord would show which one he had chosen. That verb chosen here is the same as the one Luke uses in verse 2 about the apostles that Jesus had chosen while he was alive. I believe the apostles were addressing Jesus as Lord in prayer, asking him to reveal which man, Matthias or Barsabbas, he had chosen. We see a distinct contrast between the way the apostle was chosen here and the way elders were chosen in Acts 6 and 14, which we will get to in more depth as we study through this book. But for now, let's just say this. In those accounts, the elders are simply appointed by the church. There is nothing like the process we see for finding Judas's successor. Where elders are appointed by the church, apostles are appointed directly by Jesus and are simply recognized by the church. Certainly, the recognition of authority that the eleven apostles gave to Matthias lent a lot of credence to the fact of his divine appointment. And that recognition is one of the chief evidences for Paul's own apostleship, as he also was recognized by the other apostles. But apostles are not elected. They are chosen by Jesus personally. In this case, the method used to determine Jesus' choice was casting lots. Which raises the question, is it right for Christians today to do this kind of thing to determine God's will for us? Briefly, my answer would be no, or at least be extremely careful. I don't have time to delve into that today, but I addressed it on February 2nd of this year in my sermon on the first 18 verses of the book of James. That sermon is called Trials and Temptations, and the recording is on the OVAC podcast, if you care to go back and listen to it. One last point about apostles compared with disciples before we try to figure out what all this means for us today. Are there still apostles? I mean, was this story in Acts supposed to be a model for the church to follow forevermore, to continue to replace apostles and maintain the twelve? No. There is no mention made in Acts 12 that the Apostle James was replaced after he was stoned to death. And there's no authority given to an Apostle to delegate that authority to someone else, either in the secular political world or here with Jesus' Apostles. Based on verse 25, I think the reason Judas was replaced is not because he died but because he abandoned his role as apostle. Peter emphasizes in verse 25 the fact that Judas turned aside from the ministry and then died. So the death of the faithful apostles did not require them to be replaced. So what's the point of all this? We must be careful not to be deceived by someone who calls himself a prophet or apostle or to speak with authority above that of the Bible. The Bible records some of the writings of the apostles. We know that some have been lost. But the Bible is the only apostolic authority that remains to us today. So be on your guard. Similarly, don't ever think that a church leader's ministry is important enough that God would want you to cover up his or her sin. that that a person has so much authority that God would want you to refrain from revealing that sin for fear that the revelation would jeopardize the ministry. 
Unfortunately, there are many stories of famous preachers who, after their death, were revealed to have serious, entrenched areas of sin in their lives. Let us hold our leaders accountable where they sin, while those sins are still small, so that they do not grow larger. There is no greater gift we can give to each other than to recall each other from sin before it is crippling. And I ask that you all would do that for me and for the other leaders of this church. If there is an area where we sin, please come and talk to us so that we can deal with it. Okay, moving on to the second point. And I promise we are about to turn the pace way up, so hold on to your hats. The sovereignty of God is a theme in Acts. Be watching for it. Peter says in verse 16 that the scripture had to be fulfilled concerning Judas. Jesus himself made the same point at least three times as recorded in the Gospel of Luke. Scripture must be fulfilled. So if God had ordained ahead of time the manner in which Jesus would die, and that he would be betrayed by one of his own followers, does that absolve Judas of guilt in the matter for what he did? Before we get into the theological aspect of that, let me ask you this. Did Jesus, uh, sorry, did Judas feel guilty? You bet he did. Matthew records that Judas tried to turn the blood money, return the blood money to the priests who refused him. He then threw the money at them, stormed at and hanged himself. Clearly, Judas felt guilty of his sin. He made no argument that God had forced him to do what he did. But we know that sometimes there can be a difference between our subjective feelings of guilt and our actual objective guilt, and so we need to delve a little deeper. The point in this passage is subtle, but the language that Peter uses to describe Judas's actions definitely implies guilt. He says Judas became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, even though Judas had been numbered among the apostles and had a part in the ministry. It's like Peter is saying, how could Judas have done such an evil thing after walking with Jesus and seeing who he was for all those years? Judas knew Jesus, and he still abandoned him. In Luke's parenthetical comment about the manner of Judas's death, he says Judas acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. Wickedness implies guilt. And then Peter in his prayer mentions the apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. There's definitely a hint of condemnation in that. Outside of this passage, we see the teaching not just hinted at, but clearly stated that the sovereignty of God does not absolve a sinner of personal responsibility. Paul says this in the third chapter of his letter to the Roman church. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So Paul is posing these rhetorical questions. 
if my sin increases God's glory, if God uses my evil to accomplish his good, doesn't that mean I should do more evil so that more good will come of it? And Paul says that condemnation towards people who think that way is just. It is right to condemn them in those thoughts. Later, when discussing God's sovereign choice of Jacob over Esau, Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. The Bible clearly teaches that God is sovereign over all things. It also clearly teaches that there is no injustice in God. That a sovereign God holding us accountable for our sin does not mean that God is unjust. There is no conflict between God's sovereignty and our personal responsibility for our sin. We see the same thing in Genesis chapter 50, where Joseph confronts his brothers for their sin in selling him as a slave to Egypt. Joseph says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. What you meant for evil. It's not like those brothers were thinking, let's send Joseph to Egypt. I'm sure God will use this event to save us from starvation in a few years. Oh, look, here's some slave traders. Maybe he can carpool with them. No. Their intentions were evil. But God used the actions that stemmed from those evil intentions for good. God's sovereign good ends do not justify our evil means. The, the good purposes that God has and the things that he accomplishes do not justify our evil desires and actions, even though he uses those for good. Friends, it would be far better to be Judas and feel the full weight of your sin, dying in desperation as a traitor, than to pretend you have no guilt because God made me do it. Please soften your hearts. Don't ever try to hide your sin beneath the sovereignty of God. Okay, last point here. The Holy Spirit is front and center in the entire book of Acts. As you read through the book of Acts, the main character in the first half is Peter, and at some point the focus shifts to Paul. But the main character is not actually Peter or Paul, but rather the Holy Spirit. The book opens with these words by Jesus, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Luke wants us to know that this book is about the Holy Spirit. His first book, he says, the Gospel of Luke, dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And his second book, Acts, by implication, deals with all that Jesus continued to do and teach, but through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. As we study through this book, make sure you don't miss this. Every important event and person recorded in the book is filled with the Holy Spirit. The reason the early church spread so quickly is because it was filled with the Holy Spirit. That is crucial for us to understand in this church today and in this time. The Holy Spirit is essential. We see that in this passage as Peter expresses wonderfully the manner in which the Bible is the Word of God. 
He says that the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. Isn't that beautiful? We know that all scripture is God-breathed. It is spoken directly by God and comes out of him in the same way that the breath comes out of my lungs right now. And yet, the individual writing style, the level of language mastery, and the personality of each author of scripture is preserved. The Holy Spirit spoke the Psalms that David wrote, but he spoke them through the mouth of David. And there's an even more important role of the Spirit in this passage, and so even though it surfaces in the first verse of our passage, I've saved it for last. Verse 12 starts with, They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. Right off the bat, we see that the disciples are committed to following Jesus' instructions. He commanded them to stay in Jerusalem until they had received the Holy Spirit. And so after his ascension, they go straight back to Jerusalem to wait. As Joe emphasized so wonderfully in his sermon last week, it would have been an enormous mistake for the church to rush out and begin the ministry as soon as they got off the mountain. It would have been a rough 10 days until Pentecost if they had gone out in their own power into the streets to begin the work, rather than waiting in prayer and fellowship for the power of the Spirit. Without the gift of the Holy Spirit, they did not have the resources for the ministry. They weren't ready yet. So they prayed. These disciples learned well under Jesus' teaching. Just as Jesus over and over again modeled a life of prayer and dependence on God, these men and women devoted themselves to prayer during that time. I am sure their prayers were especially fervent in that specific time, as they waited for the Spirit to come on them because of Jesus' words recorded in Luke eleven thirteen, that the Heavenly Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. So let's ask Him. We know that God is sovereign over all things, which means that today, October 18th of 2020, God intended us to not yet have a replacement pastor. If I had planned this, we would have had a new, charming, charismatic pastor hired January 1st, just in time to provide leadership to us through the difficulties of this year. Instead, we are waiting. God knows why. God knows why. But let us not wait idly. As you pray, pray for the Holy Spirit to fill you and your brothers and sisters with power to serve those you meet and show them Jesus. I'm excited to study the book of Acts together, the story of explosive growth of the church fueled by dependence on the Holy Spirit. We need that. This valley needs that, needs us, filled with the power of the Spirit of God. May he fill us even this day. Amen.